Okay, good morning, everyone. Hymn 413. This is our last week on this hymn. Next week it'll be a new hymn. Hymn 413. Stanzas 1, 3, and 5. type of vision fair of glory that the church may share which Christ upon the mountain shows where brighter than the sun he glows with shining face and bright array, Christ deigns to manifest today. What glory shall be theirs above, who join God with perfect love? O Father, with eternal Son and Holy Spirit ever one, we pray Thee bring us by Thy grace to see Thy glory face to Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O Lord, graciously hear the prayers of your people, that we who justly suffer the consequence of our sin may be mercifully delivered by your goodness to the glory of your name. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Happy Septuagesima. Welcome to pre-Lent. Lent's not here yet, but we're getting ready for it now. The verse of the week is... Whoops, that's the wrong marker. The verse of the week is Proverbs 28, 13. Let's speak this all together. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Let's just be clear about something. Who is he? Sure, yeah. Anyone. You can substitute anyone. Anyone who covers his sins, or to use... Uh, language a little more consistent with scripture, you can say the man uh, like the Psalms blessed is the man whose love is the law of the Lord. The man who covers his sins, and what does this mean that you're covering your sins? Tries to keep them a secret from Yes, yes. So the word here for cover is also a word that means to veil. Uh, 
So like when Moses veils his face, he covers his face. Why does he veil his face? So that the... Well, yes, he's in the presence of God, but there's a particular reason. He, veil, he doesn't veil his face when he's in the presence of God. He veils his face when he's in the presence of the Israelites after being with God. The glory of God was on him. Yes, to hide that. So he who covers his sins is he who squirrels away his sins, who buries them, who tries to hide uh, his sins away from the eye of the Lord. Um, you want basically to keep them for yourself. Why would we want to do that? That's a really good question. Oh. It is. She always asks good questions. Why would anybody want to keep their sins for themselves? For themselves? That's, that's the question. That's actually the easier thing to do, to keep your sins to yourself, because of man's pride. There's always th that little voice that says, well, I think I can probably take care of it myself. I don't need to give it to Jesus. I'll take care of it myself. Man is ashamed of his sins, too. He'd rather that his sins not come to light. So it's easier to hide them and say, I'll deal with them myself than it is to bring them out into the light. Um, the perfect example of that is what? And this is actually where I was going. Of someone who covers his sins. Perfect. Me? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, to a certain degree, to a certain degree, he is each of us, but I mean, yeah, okay, Adam, Adam and Eve in the garden, and uh, you know, keeping with the language, he who covers his sins, well, that's Adam. Your father has done that, which also then means that he is also you, because you're the progeny of your father. What your father does, you also do. So um, Adam and Eve cover themselves, they cover their sins by trying to hide, but they literally cover themselves. They literally attempt to cover their sins. They sew fig leaves together and, and hide their own flesh, because now it's sinful flesh. Now they're ashamed of it, so they hide it. Yes? Mm -hmm. he joined, but he had been, I don't know what he had been before, but he said that he didn't sin anymore, he made mistakes, because once he was baptized, you know, as an adult or a child or whatever, um, then he couldn't sin anymore, so he, he made mistakes, but he didn't sin. I don't know what religion he had come from. <sighs> Well, it's an interesting point of view, but one that I don't find very much support for <laughs> through the history of the church. Um, so don't cover your sins. Keep, don't keep them to yourself. And we'll talk more about that in just a second. Why? Uh, because if you do, you will not prosper, which doesn't just mean that you'll not flourish in life, which is to say that if I keep my sins to myself, I'll never have a good paying job or never quite get that car that I want or never have the family that I want or have kids that actually behave. Oh, I kept my sins to myself, so now my kids are rambunctious all the time. Um, it, it, it doesn't just mean prosper in the earthly sense, but really in the spiritual sense that if you're going to hold on to your sins, you're not going to prosper. You're actually going to fall. You're not going to receive grace and mercy because you've decided that you don't want it because 
you'll take care of everything yourself. But whoever, so this is kind of the same thing, he who, whoever, the man who, anyone who confesses, which in short, to, to say confess simply, if to cover your sins is to keep them, to confess is to do what with your sin? Yeah, give them up. And we say that when you're confessing, you're giving your sins to Jesus. Why does it matter? Well, what does Jesus do with sins when they're given to him? Well, he took them to the cross. Sure, what happens on the cross? What happens to your sin on the cross? It's, it's forgiven, it's removed from you. Yes, I, need, I want you to think in really violent language. It is obliterated. It is destroyed. It is blasted. Remember, think about it in terms of the Eucharist, right? When I come and I put the body of Christ on your tongue, it's a little atom bomb. Every single time. And it blasts it. It blasts you. It obliterates it. Give your sins to Jesus because if you give your sins to Jesus, they don't exist anymore. Jesus takes them and obliterates them. He gets rid of them. The problems that you give to Jesus are the problems that don't exist anymore because he takes care of it and you don't have to worry about it. It's all part of this idea of exchanging burdens with the Lord. He tells you to take his burden, which really isn't a burden at all. His burden is grace and mercy and truth. Your burden is a heavy one, it's sin. So give your burden to Jesus, swap loads, and uh, your life is a, uh, your burden is a lot lighter. Give your sins to Jesus. So whoever confesses and forsakes, can you think of another word that is a synonym here that we use a lot that is, uh, ties to forsake? <clears throat> Okay, given up. You're, you're right. It's, it's, not you're, the word you're looking it's not the word that I'm looking for, but it is the sense that I'm looking for. We're supposed to forget them, aren't we? I mean, because if you don't, then you worry about it, and that's a sin. Uh, yes and no. Guilt can be a good thing for you, like St. Bernard says, let the memory of my sins be so terrible I never wish to commit them again. So if that's how you're remembering your sins as, oh yes, I really don't want to do that, then it's good for you. Um, Repentance. Forsaking your sin is repentance. Which we'll talk about after we send the kids to Sunday school. Okay? Whoever confesses and repents, who forsakes them, that is his sins, will have mercy. Because there's nothing else that's going to stop you from uh, interacting with the Lord, receiving from him. The sins are gone. They're eliminated. And when, Christ, or when the Father looks at you, he sees his son, and he sees a dear child. So you will have mercy, because there's nothing that stops him. Okay? Let's speak this again. He who covers his sins will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. What is confession? Confession has two parts. First, that we confess our sins, and second, that we receive absolution, that is, forgiveness from the Master as from God himself, not doubting, but firmly believing that by it 
our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. Two parts to confession. The actual confessing part, which is to uh, give your sins to Jesus, but logistically speaking, it is admission, bringing your sins into the light, uh, taking them out of the darkness where they're hidden in the secret place and bringing them into the light so that the light can consume them. Uh, and second, receiving absolution. Note, as always, the passive language. You don't uh, go out and purchase or get absolution. You receive absolution, which means that it's somebody else that's giving it to you. Absolution. What is absolution? This is what's great about the small catechism, is that Luther creates little questions and then answers them that are not just the vasis stas of the catechism. Um, we receive absolution. What is absolution? Forgiveness from the pastor, as from God himself. And this can be a little bit confusing, so I want to tell you exactly what this means. Forgiveness from the pastor as from God himself does not mean that the pastor is the one forgiving you your sins as if God would forgive your sins. It's really the other way around. It's God who is forgiving your sins, and the pastor is just the one whose mouth is the mouth the Lord is using to speak his own words. It's not about you, and it's not about me. Uh, remember why I dress this way. It's not to look fancy. It's to cover myself up because I don't really want you to see me and be distracted by me. I want you to see Christ and know that it's not me and it's not you. It's Christ who's working. Christ works through his office uh, for your benefit. You receive the working of Christ through his office and through his means. Okay? So from the pastor as from God himself means it is from God. Uh, and that you should believe that when the pastor speaks, it isn't the pastor that's speaking, it's the Lord that is speaking. So in the rite of private confession and absolution, uh, if you avail yourself of that, there is the question that the pastor will ask the, uh, the repentant Christian, and that is, do you believe that my forgiveness is God's forgiveness? And the, the penitent says, yes. I don't come here to see a guy with glasses and a beard tell me that everything's going to be okay. I come here because the office of Christ is there and where Christ's office is, Christ is. And I want Christ to tell me that he's taken my sins. Okay? Not doubting, but firmly believing that by it, that is not by your believing, that's a confusing translation, that by it, it's not that by your believing, but by the absolution the absolution of Christ. By that absolution, that word of absolution, our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. Okay? And this also ties in with the verse of the week, whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. You're not getting mercy because you, you, you performed the act of confessing, uh, which is to say that, well, I went through the motions I jumped through all the hoops the right way so God should see what my behavior was and because I did things correctly, then he'll forgive me. It is to say instead that uh, Christ is the one who does the work by his absolution, not by your confession, but you give your sins to him and you turn away from them and when he takes your sins, he obliterates them, and that is your absolution. You're forgiven because I've taken your sins to the cross. They've died. 
There's a great saying, the ear of the pastor is the tomb where sins go to die. You go into the tomb with Jesus, um, and your sins go in there too. And when Jesus rises, you rise as well, but the sins don't rise. When they're dead, they are, they're gone forever. Okay? Um, any questions about that? Yes, sir? We may be able to hide our sins from our fellow man. Correct. Which is another sin itself. Correct. But we can't hide anything from God. Also correct. You, you, the, the eye of the Lord knows your sins. So when you try to hide your sins from God, that's why I say that it's, it's you wanting to keep them for yourself. It's not like hiding your sins or, or, or confessing your sins is telling the Lord something he doesn't already know. Like when he asks Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, did you eat from the tree that you weren't supposed to eat from? He's not saying it because he said, well, gee willikers, there's a bite taken out of this fruit. Who could possibly have done that? I don't know. We're going to have to do some sleuthing here and figure it out. And it, it's like the parent that says, did you play ball in the house and break the window? They're not asking because they don't know. <laughs> they know. They're asking to get the confession. They're asking to bring it out to the light so that it can be dealt with. Uh, so to cover your sin is to keep it to yourself. You're trying to hide it, but the Lord knows it's there. And when you give it to the Lord, he says, thank you, this is what I've been trying to get you to do this whole time. Just give it all to me and don't worry about it because if I have it, then it's gone. And that's really what's best for you is that you just give it all to me. So anytime you, uh, anytime you have a sin, you just give it to me. I'm going to take care of it. It doesn't mean that you should say, well, Jesus is just going to take care of all my sins, so I should just rack it up, huh? Uh, it means that you forsake them, or at least you do your best to forsake them, because you'll never really be able to uh, get away from your sinful nature. As long as you wear this corrupted flesh, you'll always have that, what we talked about last week, concupiscence, that desire inside of you to say, hey, you know what I'd really like to do right now? I'd really like to sin. You'll always have that. Um, so when it is that you fail in forsaking your sins, you bring them to the Lord and you give them to Him, not because He doesn't know about them, but because He wants to get rid of them for you. All right, anything else? Okay, to Sunday school. You may go. The word, the word that we translate as repentance, in the Greek is a word, uh, it is the word metanoia, metanoia. <clears throat> um, it, it's, a, it's a turning away. The most kind of literal sense of the word is changing direction, turning away, rejection. So to say that you repent, is not just to say that you feel sorry for your sins. That's another thing I wanted to hit here. Just like confession has two parts, repentance also has two parts. There's contrition, which is what? Sorry for your feeling sorry for your sins. Uh, contrition is recognizing that you have done something wrong and feeling bad about it and knowing that you need to take care of it. Contrition is something that really drives the Christian to repentance because uh, the word of the Lord tells you, hey, uh, you've, you've not really done what you're supposed to do. 
Remember, the Ten Commandments are your best friend. Um, it's law and it's gospel. It just depends on what side of the fence you're on, what side of that line at the Grand Canyon. Don't take pictures on the other side of this line. Well, if you're not on the other side of the line, it doesn't really matter, does it? It's actually something really good for you because you say, boy, someone's really looking out for me. That's great. But then you step across the line and the same words all of a sudden take on a completely different tone. Hey, don't do that. That's really bad for you. Get away from there. Okay? So um, it's the same kind of thing here. Contrition is going to be informed by the word of the Lord that says, hey, you're doing a really good job here. Continue striving. Ooh, whoops, whoops. You, you took a step off the right path. That's not right. You've, you've accrued some sin. Get back on the path, get back on the way, and give that to Jesus. He'll take care of it all. Don't just, just get back on and don't worry about it. Give it to Jesus. Okay? That's contrition. You're, you're, the, being sorry for your sins, the, the guilt that's associated with it, all that. And then repentance proper, which is the uh, turning away from your sins. So feeling sorry for them isn't enough. Say, well, I feel really bad that I did that. And I'm sure the next time I do it, I'll probably feel bad too. But I really don't have any uh, desire to stop doing it because it's fun in the, in the moment. I just feel bad about it afterwards. But, you know, I'd really like to, like to keep it up, Bill. I got into a theological discussion with uh, one of my daughters who is almost as bullheaded as I am. And so it was, it was not so much a discussion as it was an argument. <coughs> But it was over an issue of uh, somebody in the church living with somebody else and the pastor mm. telling that person that as long as they did that, he would not give them communion. They yeah. were welcome to come back, but not now. And my daughter's, and she says, well, she's sorry for her sin. And I said, yeah, but the... Uh, the woman at the well, Jesus forgave her sin, but then he told her, go and sin no more. Yes. That's the part people forget. Well, Jesus, Jesus uh, said, nobody here is going to accuse you, and I don't accuse you either. That means it's okay. We live in grace, and we have the freedom of the gospel, right? So if I want to up and divorce my wife, well, I can do it, and there's no consequences from the church. It doesn't matter that God loves marriage. If I want to do that, I can. If I want to shack up with somebody, I am, I'm, I'm going to be able to do that. And as long as I feel bad about it or pretend to, well, then that's enough, right? Uh, but it isn't. But it isn't, uh, because the Lord also says, go and sin no more. This is really bad for you. You don't want to continue doing it. Go and sin no more. That's really the attitude that every Christian should have when they leave confession and absolution. You and I both know that you're going to be back. <laughs> There's no secrets there. But when you leave... You and I also have the understanding that you're leaving in the state of repentance where you really do want to forsake your sins, where you really do want to depart and sin no more. And the problem with cohabitation is, that's, that's a massive issue, but the biggest problem with it is that people are of the opinion that feeling sorry for it is enough. Well, I'm sorry that I'm doing it. If you were sorry for it, it would also inform a repentance which is turning away from it. If you don't turn away from it, you're really not sorry from it. You're just putting on airs. And that's bad because that's a willful, manifest sin. 
And that's the kind of sin that we would refer to as a, a mortal sin. You know, the Roman Catholics will talk about mortal and venial sins, and the truth is that the Lutherans actually talk about that too. The difference in how Lutherans and Catholics talk about mortal and venial sins, though, is this. The Lutherans aren't going to look at particular vices and say, well, this one's just a, a, a venial sin, so you can do that and it'll be okay. Like, if you tell a little white lie, well, that's just a, a venial sin. Don't worry about it. Uh, but this one, you know, murdering your, your brother, well, that's a mortal sin. The, the truth is that every sin is a mortal sin because what is the consequence of sin? It's you're right, but it's, don't, you're not saying it right. Separation from God. It's, you're, it's death. Yeah, and death is, at the end of the day, death, and I'm not talking about the death of the body. I'm talking about real, true death. And you know, on the last day, the outer darkness, the door that's locked in front of you, that's what death is. And that is separation from God. But, but you have to use the stark language of death. The, the consequence of sin is always going to be death. So every sin is in that sense a mortal sin because the consequence for you telling a little white lie or you murdering your brother is going to be exactly the same because sin is sin. We create a hierarchy of sin, but to the Lord, even the smallest sin is equal to what man considers a, a great sin. So really, the difference between mortal and venial sins is this. Sins that are easily forsaken and for which you really do feel con true contrition and repentance over, that you really do turn away from, that you really do leave confession saying, I'm going to leave and, and depart in peace and sin no more, versus the willful manifest sins, that's what we'd say is mortal sin, willful manifest sins that say, well, I don't really feel that bad for them and I'm going to keep on doing them. Uh, and everybody has sins like that that they struggle with, Everybody has uh, repetitive sins, and, and everybody is uniquely weak in that sense. Um, but the cohabitation issue is a very good example of the kind of a willful manifest sin that a Lutheran would refer to as a mortal sin, because unless you're going to move out, then you're just acknowledging that you are in sin, but you don't care. That's what it says. Even if you say, well, I feel bad about it, but I'm going to keep doing it. Well, then you don't care. And a sin for which you have no care, well, I, don't, I know I'm sinning, but I don't care that I'm sinning. That is the worst kind of sin, because that's the kind of sin where you say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to veil it. I'm going to cover it up. I'm going to keep it for myself. Yeah, I'm not going to forsake it. I'm just going to keep it. And those are the sins. You know, the only sins Jesus can't forgive are the sins that aren't given to Jesus. So if you keep your sins, if you cover them up, if you retain them and you say, I'd rather take care of these myself than letting the Lord take care of them, on the last day the Lord will say, okay, but I tried to tell you, it's, it's going to be really hard, in fact impossible, for you to take care of those yourself. But if you really want to, I can't force you to love me. Okay. okay. Yes, go. So we've had this discussion before, but we've never had it with you. <laughs> so um, I've always lost it. <laughs> well, okay. Okay. So the sins that are difficult to okay, 
So going back to this discussion, sure. um, they, they were not to come to the communion rail if they were cohabitating. They were not to come to the communion rail because they, they would not be given communion. Yes. Okay. So I have a question. Okay. My thought was that at that time, and I'm really not being the devil's advocate here. I just have a question about it. Mm -hmm. so You're allowed to be the devil's advocate. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, we probably shouldn't have anybody that are smokers come into the communion rail because they daily are smoking unless they're going to quit smoke, do a smoking cessation program as soon as they leave. Uh, we shouldn't have people that are overweight because over uh, gluttony is also a sin to the temple of God, which is your body. Sure. So <sighs> tell me how that differs. <clears throat> to say that your body is a temple of God mm -hmm. does mean you should take care of your flesh. And like the rant I went on last week, your flesh matters. Mm -hmm. But point me to where the commandment says, thou shalt not eat two Twinkies a day. <laughs> or the commandment that says, thou shalt not smoke a pack or two or three a day. Is it good for your body? Probably not. In fact, it's not. But really, Gail, how many people in this room do something that probably isn't the healthiest for their body? Or, in some sense, don't do the things that would be healthy. Like, should I exercise more than I do? Yes, I should. I think everybody could say that. If, 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 if nobody could say that, we wouldn't have the joke about the New Year's resolutions. Okay? So, to say that your body is a temple of the Lord is to say something more than just, you better watch what you do to it. Uh, it means that the Lord is indwelling. So that the temple of Old Testament Israel, the temple of intertestamental Jerusalem, is no longer the place where the Lord's presence dwells. The Lord's presence dwells in the flesh of man because the Lord took on himself the flesh of man. The temple is now a new thing. This is, there, there is a group of people called the Seventh-day Adventists. And what you are saying is actually what they advocate for saying, well, my body's a temple of the Lord, so I shouldn't eat X, Y, and Z, and I have to do A, B, and C, and I need to make sure that the only things I eat are one, two, and three, because this is now the new temple. I mean, you should try to be healthy, sure, but the Bible isn't there to give fitness lessons. And here's where the, the comparison doesn't really work. Because if Christ is indwelling in you, what is the thing that is going to push him away? Is it smoking a cigarette that's going to push him away from his temple? Is it eating Twinkies that's going to push him away from his temple? No. But it is sin. And you know, Gerhard, uh, Johann Gerhard, the Lutheran theologian, writes that every Christian has a guardian angel, but when you consistently sin, in an unrepentant manner when you decide that you'd rather live in that sin than forsake it, uh, you push your guardian angel away, you push the Holy Spirit away, you essentially kick Christ out and say, I really don't want you anymore, I'd rather have something else. 
That's the issue with things like cohabitation. And instituting a minor ban for something like cohabitation is not actually the law. Everybody thinks that that's the law. Well, doggone it, you did this, your punishment's going to be, you don't get to come up here. False. It's not the law, it's the gospel. What is excommunication? It's not the law, it's the gospel. The church ought to weep. The pastor ought to bawl his eyes out anytime he has to tell somebody, you can't come here because you're living in manifest sins. The reason why is this, Gail. The pastor is the steward of the mysteries of, of God. And it is the body and it is the blood of Christ, no matter what you think about it, which is a great thing because it doesn't depend on you, but it's also a really frightening thing because if you go up with the confession that says, yeah, it's really not, or I don't care, or I don't, I'm going to keep on sinning anyway, I'm not going to do anything, then it, the body of Christ doesn't become for you a good thing, it actually becomes a poison. And as a steward of the mysteries, the pastor, the responsible pastor, can't willfully feed you bleach. Now, here's a chicken dinner for you. Here's some bleach. Oh, this is really good. Come here and drink this. But what's, what's going to be the result of that action? It's going to be death. And when you look at excommunication, and particularly St. Paul's um, explanation of of. Uh, excommunication, let him be to us anathema. Let, treat, he will be treated like a Gentile. Stop and think about that for a minute. Because what's your first response when it says, kick him out and treat him like a Gentile? What do you think? What's question? What do you think about it? What does it make you think of? Kick him out and treat him like a Gentile. Forget him. He's garbage. He doesn't belong. He's a Gentile. He's a goyim. He doesn't belong here. And he just made it manifest that he doesn't want to belong here, so kick him out in good riddance. False, though. So when we tell, well, I don't know that we do that now, but Stacy was one of them that was told not to take communion when he was a janitor before he was married. So are you saying, oh, never mind, I just forgot my question. <laughs> It's, it's, the issue of cohabitation is a very difficult one. No pastor wants to ever tell somebody, look, this is really bad for you, and because you're, you're doing this, I can't give you the body and blood because it's going to kill you. My job is to give you life and, and to be in charge of the mysteries of God. I don't want to kill you. I want you to turn away. I want you to stop covering your sin. I want you to bring it out into the light. I want you to acknowledge it. I want you to give it to Jesus. I want you to forsake it, turn away from it, and stop doing it. But so that's when they need communion the most. <sighs> it's a fine line, because if communion's going to kill you, then you shouldn't have it. Okay. You need communion when you struggle with sins. And I've said this before. You know, the, uh, there's this common misunderstanding that if I harbor ill will against my brother, I shouldn't commune. Uh, and that's actually when you need it, because the Eucharist is the place where you're going to learn to love the people that you hate. Uh, the problem is when you go up there and you hate your brother and you say, I'd rather go to hell than give up my hatred of my brother. If you go up there going, I hate my brother and I struggle with it, I know I shouldn't do it and I hate him and this is so hard for me to get over, then yes, come. But if you say, I hate my brother and he's no good and 
and I'll wait for him to come to apologize to me, but I'm not going to blah, 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 because of what he did, then no, I'm not going to commune you for that, because that's the attitude of holding on to sin. The attitude that says, I am a sinner, I hate my brother, and I know I shouldn't, and it's, I feel terrible about it, and I don't know what to do, and should I or should I not go up to communion? You should, because that's contrition. That's contrition working right there, and the Eucharist, the body and blood of Christ, is going to be one of those things that puts you on the path of repentance. If, if anybody who committed sin was barred from the sacrament, who'd ever get it? If anybody who went to the hospital and was sick was barred from getting medicine, who'd get medicine? But there are some medicines that are not good for some people. Some medicines will kill you. One person can have this medicine, another person can't because they have an underlying condition. You're a nurse. You understand this. This is the way the church operates. For hating your brother but understanding that it's wrong and really struggling with it, the medicine of Christ is a good medicine because it's going to treat that and it's going to help to heal you. But for the underlying condition that is, I'm, yeah, sure, I know you think it's wrong that I'm doing this, but I'm going to keep on doing it. I know the church thinks it's wrong, but I'm going to keep on doing it because it's convenient or because I can't pay rent or whatever. Um, that's when it's bad because that's your underlying condition. Then you can't take that medicine until we figure out what's going on with your condition. Does that make sense? I don't want to kill anybody. I, I really don't. I take it really seriously. If I don't talk to you before communion and you haven't been here before, and somehow the service starts, I'll talk to you right there at the rail. Because I'm not just going to give you the body and blood of Christ because you have a seat in a pew and because you're right there at the altar. I don't care that you come to the altar. I want you to, but I don't care that you've come there. I don't care that you've signed the attendance book. I don't care that you've sat in a pew. That's not the thing that matters. Okay? Does this... I don't know if this is helping. Okay. Yes, Bruce. Uh, Pastor, was talking there a little bit on uh, the excommunication. And oh yeah, I never actually finished that, did I? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what that means is uh, through taking catechism instructions and that, and when we was talking about the right of excommunication, isn't the act of that? Supposed to help the offender see their sin. Yes. Okay. And, and you know, the, I know you know, but the, the message, you know, you go and talk to the person that is sinning in that, and they basically kick you off the place, and you take some more along, and it goes through this step-to-step -step process, and finally. Then you go ahead and you might say, serve them papers of excommunication to dismiss them from the church. Okay, the reason I'm asking all this, many, many years ago, uh, we had that situation in Concordia Lutheran Church. And this particular party basically was starting, you might say, a land feud between the neighbors that surrounded him, and this involved mostly all losers. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point of threats and that, and the pastor we had here at that time, 
finally, they had to go ahead and you might say send him notice of that communication. And you're hoping that person realizes their mistake and asks for forgiveness. He didn't. He received that notice. And this became a public thing in the community. Mm -hmm. And this individual that was served this goes into the local coffee shops and throws this down and says, look at this. Those so-and-so Lutherans said, I'm not good enough to be in that church. And it caused quite a problem. And as a young kid, I don't remember, but from that time on, that individual is passed on now. But from that time on, it just carried a big black flag over everybody that was involved in it. Mm -hmm. And that, so I don't know if that is the very last resort. Yes, it ought to be. And it really, you might say, come back to bite a lot of people. And then. It has the potential to. Yes. It has the potential to, especially if excommunication is not understood rightly. Be and I can tell from your story that it wasn't. Because if the response of excommunication is, quote, I'm not good enough to be in that church, then you've missed the point of what excommunication is. Right. And, and that person, I said, they had a hardened heart from the day they took their last breath here on earth. But, and then, you know, you feel bad because it's a lost soul. Mm. And that's, but, but that thing in our church, like I say, I don't know, it would take a lot of praying and guidance if you ever had to do that with a member again, I would think. It, and it ought to, rightly so. Uh, it's ne that's never something that anybody, any pastor or any church should take on uh, lightly. It's it, you know, it doesn't exist so that you can hang it over people's head and use it like a threat. If you don't shape up, I'm going to kick you out. I'm going to excommunicate you. You better shape up, mister. No, that, that's, that's not the purpose of it. Uh, it is one of the most painful but also the most loving acts that the office of the ministry, the office of the keys, can perform. You know, I, the office of the keys gives the authority to loose sins, but also to bind them. And if you say, I want these, I don't want to get rid of them, I want to keep them, then the keys say, okay, you get to keep them because that's what you've asked for. But, and this is actually, I've, I forgot to, finish my thought on this, so this is, thank you for bringing that up because you reminded me where I was going. Um, the idea that you're going to treat somebody like a Gentile doesn't mean that you kick him to the curb and say, they're not one of us anymore, they're not dirty Gentiles. It means that you more fervently pray for them and attempt to minister to them. So excommunication doesn't mean you kick him to the curb and then say, when he comes back with his tail between his legs, then we'll let him back. It means that everybody in that congregation ought to be reaching out to that person, pleading with them to repent of their sins and come to some kind of peaceful 
agreement. It means that the pastor ought to be on his hands and knees sobbing at that person's door saying, please, please, please repent of your sins every single day. I mean, you understand the gravity of this. Treating them like a Gentile doesn't mean letting them go. It means paying them more attention because you want that one sheep to come back because Jesus wants all his kids to come home. And if you want to be prodigal and you want to slop pigs and be hungry, you can. But it doesn't make Jesus happy. It makes him sad. He doesn't want you to be there slopping pigs. He wants you to be in his house with the best robe. So you ought to be going to them and telling them, listen, slopping pigs is not good for you. This is not what's best for you. We want you here. We're not kicking you out. We want you here. But you have asked to be let go because you're covering your sins. You're not giving them to Jesus. You're saying you'd rather take care of it all yourself. Now, listen, not everyone in the church is going to get along. And that's okay. Personalities clash. You're not going to like everybody in your congregation, frankly. You might not even like your pastor. But you pretend like you get along. You work to get along. You strive to be kind and loving and peaceful and caring, even to the people that you really can't stand. You go to the Eucharist, you learn to love those people. You work at it, because that's the church. So the, the person who is excommunicated can harbor ill will, and you know, they very well may, but <clears throat> by the same account, the work that goes into trying to bring people to repentance before excommunication becomes something that is necessary ought to be diligent, repetitive, faithful work that is born of love and from the desire to have everybody turn away from sin. Maybe there is a land dispute, and uh, my experience, limited though it may be, says that there's never just one person at fault. So maybe there are other people at fault. Maybe, maybe an individual has a right to be angry. But none of that matters in the church. Because what it comes down to is repentance, forgiveness, peaceable agreement, working things out together as children of God, not hating one another. And hating like that, Bruce, is really the worst thing that anybody can do. Because here's the definition of hate. I know I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. The, de the definition of hate is drinking poison and waiting for your enemy to die. Because it's really, it's really worse for the person who does the hating than it is for the other person. You want to harbor grudges and ill will. And we all know that, that there are people still in the community who have certain opinions about things, decisions that were made about this congregation and things that happened here. And a lot of those people harbor this ill will. A lot of these people have one excuse for not coming here, and it's because somebody said something to me that I didn't like. And that should grieve you. It should grieve the pastor. It should grieve the church because those people are sitting there drinking hemlock and going, I can't wait for you to kick the dust. And there's only one outcome, which is why the church ought to strive to bring people back in kindness and in charity and in love. It's why the church treats the excommunicated like, not like garbage, but like Gentiles. You go out to them, bring them, talk to them, love them, take care of them, bring them back to the fold, pray for them, pray that the Lord would work on their hearts to 
chisel the hearts of stone and open it back up, that they see the light, that they take the sins they're trying to hide and just get rid of them. Stop trying to hold on to them. The longer you hold on to your sins, the heavier they get. You're walking around with a ball and chain, but it's a ball and chain that grows. The longer it's on you, the heavier it gets and the harder it is to deal with it. Get rid of it. Bill. Pretty sure I know the story. <laughs> but, but I, I'm happy with but it being I, I hypothetical. But I don't, I don't have to know the story uh, for what I want to say. And that is, that person that had that letter and then went to the coffee shop and said, looky here what they did to me, he's got the, to use the quote, the bully pulpit. Because he's got that piece of paper that says, Concordia Church kicked him out of the church. To give the elders and the pastor their due, it, it's, it's not exactly their job then to go to the coffee shop and say, hey, we didn't do that. Or here's the reason we did that, because by, in, in, in charity, I'm not going to talk about this in public. It's, it's, it's between that person and the church. This is all my opinion. <laughs> because you're not going to do the church any good by getting into an argument with, in, in publicly over that. Pray about it and try and, and work with what pastor is. I know for a fact that at St. John's, going back a couple of generations, there was an issue in Corning, the massive community of Corning, over somebody, and I have a friend, she's 102 years old, lives in Rockport, and she was just telling me here recently how her mother-in-law, now she's 102 years old, her mother-in-law is way back there, and her mother-in-law was kicked out of the church at Corning. No. But she told everybody she was kicked out of the church because she didn't go to church. She didn't go to church. She removed herself from the congregation, but then she told everybody, oh, they kicked me out. No, they didn't kick you out. They didn't excommunicate and hadn't done that, and there was a couple of instances of that. Oftentimes, people remove themselves from that communion, that gathering, and then in their own defense, they say, oh, no, I didn't do anything wrong. They pushed me out. And we have to kind of, in a prayerful way, we have to defend ourselves, too, that those people were welcome in the church. We've got issues today. Mm, I'm sure I'm not going to clear. We, uh, if there's a question, then yeah, don't. You ain't seen nothing yet. somebody who's outside of the church says, hey, you, you kick so-and-so out, then you have to defend, we have to defend ourselves too. 
Okay, Pastor, take a shot. <laughs> Here's the, here, this is what I'm going to say. I don't have the time to pick all the little bird shot. Okay. If you want to be in the church, and I'm not, and, and when I say the church, I don't mean the congregation. I mean big C, capital C church, the Catholic church. If you want to be a part of the holy Catholic church, you do not get to have your cake and eat it too. You can listen to what Jesus says to the woman. Your sins are forgiven, depart in peace and sin no more. You can hate sin. You can spend your whole life really working hard to try and run away from it, not touching evil things and only touching holy things. Or you can say you don't care. That the church is old, is part of the patriarchy, outdated, we need to be progressive, I'm going to do what I want to do, but if your attitude is that I'm going to do what I want to do, then by definition you're not forsaking sin, you're not rejecting evil things, you're running to them. And if you're, if you're not rejecting evil things and you're running to touch them instead, you are rejecting holy things. So this is where things like church discipline and excommunication and minor bans from the altar, um, the, the excommunication would be considered a major ban. Saying you shouldn't commune is a minor ban because you're still part of the body and we're still working with you, but for the time being you really shouldn't be here because it's bad for you. Um, major bands, minor bands, all of these things exist to show you how bad your sin is. Don't keep holding on to that. If you, if you want to hold on to it, that's fine, but you can't be here if you're going to hold on to that. This is the place where you get that removed from you. This is the place where you get the medicine that's going to treat that condition. But if you don't want the condition treated, then this is actually a place that's bad for you. Yes, the church is full of hypocrites. I love it when people say that as if it's some kind of a trump card. Well, I'm not going to go to church because it's full of hypocrites. Oh, oh, you're really smart. You figured it out. Yeah, no duh. Good work, Sherlock. The church is full of hypocrites. It's kind of the point. That's like going to the hospital and going, now, wait a minute, this place is full of sick people. Yeah, because that's the point. But it's sick people who are trying to get better. It's a hospital. If you want to stay sick, that's fine. If you tell the doctor, well, I'm coming here, and I want to sit around and hang out here, and I want you to try to give me medicine, but then I'm going to tell you I don't want it because I want to stay sick. Now, well, well, why are you here? Give me that medicine, but I don't want to take it. Then why? I can't give you the things that are bad for you. Jesus is, Jesus is not going to give you the things that are bad for you. That's an issue because... Sinful man wants to 
hold on to those things and doesn't want to acknowledge that they are bad. This is the big problem with cohabitation, right? Because, especially now, when it's so rampant, because it's a matter of convenience. How do I know if I want to marry somebody if I don't live with them for 10 years first? How do I know if I really know this person? How do I know if we're going to get along? You're not, you don't. <laughs> and frankly, if you were given the trial period, you probably wouldn't have ended up marrying them. And I'm not saying that as a commentary. But if the woman knew how the man was going to behave, walking around in his boxer shorts and throwing his dirty laundry down the <laughs> stairs and X, Y, and Z, whatever else that he does that annoys her, would she marry him? Would it, would it matter? I mean, the, the entire attitude of cohabitation says, I don't love you unconditionally. I love you conditionally. That's what cohabitation is. It's a trial run. I love you, but conditionally. We'll see if it works. I don't really want to go the whole way because I don't really want to get married because I really can't get out of a marriage, but I can, we can dry run it here. And then the thing is, you've been living together for 10, 15 years. Why the heck do you want to get married at all? You are already living that way. You already don't understand what marriage is. Why all of a sudden do you want to... I, I had so many friends in college that were living with people, and it was just, you know, just a couple years ago that they all started getting married. And at that point, you're like, well, why bother? <laughs> I mean, really? You know, we're going to have a big, elaborate wedding. Why? Why? You've already been living like it. You know, the problem with cohabitation, one of the reasons it's so bad for you is because it says, I love you conditionally. I don't love you unconditionally. I'm going to look. We're going to try it. We're going to see. Or because it's convenient. Well, I can't afford the rent by myself, so we're going to get a place together, and then it's cheaper for us. The financial excuse is another one. If it's really that bad, come to the church, and we'll figure out a way to help you. Heck, if you want to stay in the parsonage, come talk to me. Staying in the parsonage with me would be a whole lot better than living with somebody in that kind of manifest sin. And then the problem is, and you all know this, when alternatives like that are put forth, then the reality really comes out, which is, all of the excuses, everything that's given, well, don't have enough money, well, we're going to try it out. Then it doesn't matter, because that's when the lettuce hits the fan, and that's when they say, yeah, okay, uh, no, we're just going to keep doing it. No more excuses. It's not really about the finances. It's not really about dry running a marriage. It's about doing what I want to do. It's about me being independent as an individual and nobody's going to tell me what to do and the church needs to change because they're not progressive enough. Newsflash for you, the church isn't called to be progressive and any church that touts itself as a progressive church is a church that probably isn't in line with Christ and one you should probably avoid. In fact, the church is called to be the opposite. Not progressive, but regressive in a sense. Always pointing you back to the teachings of Christ to the crucifixion of Christ. Yeah, we live a backward life as Christians, but guess what? The Christian, Christians have always lived a backwards life. They lived a backwards life in the first century. We're going to live a backwards life the rest of eternity because that's what Christianity is. It's contrary to the world. If you want to be progressive, you want to be in line with the world. And then you're not the church. 
You want to be in the world but not of it. But if you decide that you'd rather be of the world, then you can't also be of the church. Do you see this? And if you really want to be of the world and not of the church to such a degree that excommunication is the only option that the church has left, the church ought to grieve that somebody cares so much about being a part of the world that they would abandon something that is so great. So you treat them like a Gentile. You pray for them. Even if they never come back to church, you pray that with their dying breath on their deathbed, they repent and turn back to Christ. Because holding yourself to your sins like that is a type of atheism. It's a type of idolatry. It's worshiping a different God, touching unholy things. And at the end of the day, what we want is for you not to touch those things, for you not to worship those idols, for you not to think that you can live by taking what they're going to give you. Because we know that there is something greater and better and oh so good for you. Okay, any last questions? Next week is a hymn study. The week after that, we'll talk about the star and then eventually try to get into some talk about death. So the offer still stands. If there's anything that you want to know or are curious about or confused about, about death or dying or what the church thinks about it or who's saved or what, write it, write it down and I'll be sure to include it in the class. You can ask questions during the class, but it helps me if there are specific things that I know you want to cover right away because I can put them in there. So keep thinking about that and write it down and put it in the basket or share it with me, okay? I'm going to say something at the end of church today, but for all of you who are here in Bible class, I want to say thank you to you. This has been a, a, a difficult week. And both, Carolyn will not be here today, uh, but she and I both are so extraordinarily blessed to serve you. And we are so thankful for everything that you have, every message that you have sent, every offer that you have given to us, every card that we've received, everything. And uh, I just wanted to take this opportunity to say in person to you how much you all mean to us and how grateful we are uh, for all of you. It's, it's been very kind. Um, so thank you. Don't thank us, we thank you. Thanks be to God. Okay, we'll see you at the altar. <clears throat>